Just after 2.30 a.m. on December 15, 2000, a man named Steve Johnson and his girlfriend Kim were at their home in Wichita, Kansas, when they heard a pounding at their front door. What they would find when they opened the door would change their lives forever. It was a young woman, nude and bloodied, telling them that she and her friends had been shot, and she was begging them to call 911. This was the final event of a horrific crime spree that spanned over nine days. This is the Wichita Massacre. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Welcome back to the Haunted Corner. Thanks for joining me today. Today's true crime episode is the Wichita Massacre. And honestly, I didn't know about this until recently. But I knew I had to cover it when I heard about it. There's a lot to this case, so let's get into it. Brothers Reginald and Jonathan Carr grew up in Dodge City, Kansas where the crime rate was 28% higher than other parts of the country. Reginald was born on November 14, 1977, and Jonathan was born on March 30, 1980. The two had a really rough childhood. It was not great. Their parents were alcoholics and were abusive to the boys, and it really affected the boys to the point where Jonathan attempted suicide at age seven. Reginald and Jonathan were abused. Their mother would leave them for days at a time with relatives who were not kind to them. By age 13, Reginald was dealing drugs and was a member of a gang. He attended eight different schools by the time he reached eighth grade. He struggled through high school and eventually dropped out of school and was in prison by the time he was 18. He was in and out of prison for burglaries, drug possession, and fighting. Jonathan had a rough time, just like his brother. He was said to be full of rage and showed many aggressive and disturbing behaviors like Reginald had. There were only They were only a few years apart, so they were really close, and there began a cycle. Reginald would go into prison, Jonathan would wait for him to get out, and then they'd go commit crimes together. And eventually, the crimes began to escalate from selling drugs to robbing people at gunpoint. In 2000, the boys were 20 and 22 years old, and they decided to drive around Wichita and follow people who drove fancy cars in order to rob them. Around 10.45 p.m. on Thursday, December 7, 2000, a 23-year-old man named Andrew Schreiber was out and about. Andrew was an assistant basketball coach and a sports enthusiast. He arrived at a local convenience store to get some skull, and he walked back to his 1998 expedition, got into the car, 
and put a seatbelt on. And just as he was about to start the car, Reginald Carr walked up to him and pointed a small black semi-automatic handgun at Andrew through the window. He ordered Andrew to move over to the passenger seat and then he got into the driver's seat. As they drove out of the parking lot, Reginald asked Andrew if he had any money and Andrew gave him his wallet, which had some cash as well as his credit cards. They pulled into an alley where Jonathan got into the car, forcing Andrew into the middle before he hit John, he hit Andrew in the head with his gun. The brothers forced Andrew to take money out for them at three separate ATMs, totaling $800. It was at that time that the brothers began to think about what their next move should be and where they should drop Andrew off at. They eventually arrived at a car wash near an apartment complex. They would retrieve Jonathan's car from the original scene before wiping down the expedition and parking it on a dirt road. Jonathan ordered Andrew to lay face down on the floor in the back seat of his car. The brothers then told Andrew that they would leave the, his keys in the middle of the street before Reginald shot three times into one of the rear, rear tires. He told Andrew to wait 20 minutes before leaving, and then the brothers fled the scene. Andrew heard them get into their car and leave. He slowly peeked out the window and could see that they were leaving the road. He then made his way into the street and somehow found his keys. He then drove the entire way home with a flat tire and called 911 when he arrived. So here the brothers were committing these pretty horrible crimes and just getting away with it. Although he was injured from being hit several times with the gun, thankfully Andrew had survived his encounter with the Carr brothers but there would be others who wouldn't be as lucky as he was. On Monday, December 11th, a 55-year-old woman named Anne Walenta, who was a librarian and a cellist in the Wichita Symphony Orchestra, was leaving a rehearsal in her GMC Yukon when she noticed something strange. As she got closer to her neighborhood, she noticed a light-colored four-door vehicle turn onto the road behind her. The car followed Anne's vehicle as she continued to turn onto her street, which, is, which was a, cul a cul-de-sac with a dead end. Anne pulled into her driveway but left the car running. She then noticed that the car had been following her was now stopped in front of her neighbor's house, and she saw someone get out of the vehicle and begin walking towards her. Anne rolled down the car window partially so that she could see what the person wanted. And at that time, Jonathan Carr appeared with a gun pointed at Anne's head. He immediately told Anne not to move the car, but she instinctively put the car into reverse and started to back out of the driveway. At that point, Jonathan began to fire the gun directly into Anne's car, striking her three times. Jonathan took off running towards the car where Reginald was waiting while Anne's car rolled to a stop across the street from her house. She fell forward onto the horn, which alerted her neighbor, Anna Kelly, who had also heard the gunshots. She ran to help Anne and told her husband to call 911. Anne was taken to the hospital, where she was able to give a better description of her attacker. 
She described him as being between five foot nine and six feet tall and described his hair as being long and wiry with corkscrews. Anne's condition was critical at first, and doctors weren't sure if she was going to make it. However, although she was paralyzed, her condition began to improve. After being in the hospital for a few weeks, she was transferred to a rehabilitation facility in January. Unfortunately, it was at this time that she suffered a pulmonary embolism and passed away. Although she passed away several weeks after the initial attack, Anne Walenta would be considered the first of the murder victims in the Wichita Massacre. Just four days after Anne Walenta was shot and critically injured by Jonathan Carr, the brothers' crimes would again escalate to even more depraved lengths than they had gone to before. On Thursday, December 14, 2000, a man named Jason Befort and his longtime girlfriend, only known as H.G., to protect her identity, were spending the evening together at Jason's condo that he shared with two roommates. Jason and H.G. were both teachers. H.G. was 25 at the time, and she taught, Rose, she taught at Rose Hill Elementary School, while Jason was a 26-year-old science teacher and high school basketball coach. The two had been in love for several years, and Jason had recently purchased an engagement ring to give H.G. at Christmas a few weeks later. Jason shared the condo at 12727 Birchwood Drive with two of his friends from college, 27-year-old Brad Heike, who was the manager of a local financial services company, and 29-year-old Aaron Sander, who was studying to become a priest. H.G. arrived at the condo around 8.30 p.m. on the night of the 14th. She brought along her gray schnauzer named Nikki and used her own key to open the front door, noting that Jason's 1999 Dodge Dakota was not parked out front. She said hi to Brad and Aaron, who were both downstairs. Then she headed into Jason's room and started grading papers while she waited for Jason. Around this time, Heather Muller arrived. Heather was the ex-girlfriend of Aaron Sander, and the two remained friends after breaking up because of Aaron's desire to go into priesthood. Heather was loved by everyone. She loved to sing, and she was planning a 50th anniversary celebration for friends the night of the 14th before she had arrived. HG turned on ER at 9 o'clock p.m. to watch while she was still grading papers. Around 9.15 p.m., Jason arrived home and changed out of his basketball clothes. Jason talked with HG for a while before heading downstairs to watch TV with Brad, which had become the norm for them. They were good friends and loved to spend time together. Around 10 o'clock p.m., HG went downstairs to visit with Jason and Brad for a minute. Knowing that she had to be up up for work early the next day, she only stayed downstairs for a short while. As she went back to the first floor where Jason's room was, she pulled her hair back into a plastic clip and got into bed. Shortly after that, Brad and Jason decided to head to bed as well. Jason walked around the house and turned off all of the lights before getting into bed. Somewhere between 11 o'clock and 11.45 p.m., one of the neighbors named Jean Beck was leaving a restaurant called The Grape, where she had gone right after work that night. 
she left the building and got into her 2000 BMW and started heading home. As she got closer to her house, she noticed a tan four-door vehicle behind her. The car followed her as she turned off the main road, which caused her to raise her suspicions and call her daughter. She asked her to open the garage door at their condo at 12725 Birchwood Avenue and pulled into the driveway. She then saw the car pass her home and head back towards the main road. She waited for the car to leave before heading inside her condo. The car came back, though, about 10 minutes later, and this time two black men, the Carr brothers, exited the vehicle and walked up to 12727 Birchwood, which was Jason, Aaron, and Brad's condo possibly thinking that maybe they were at Jean Beck's condo, which was the woman in the fancy BMW who they had just followed home. Who knows? Either way, they knocked on the door, and Aaron quickly turned on the porch light and opened the door. The brothers forced their way into the condo at gunpoint, and Jonathan quickly found Jason's room on the first floor and burst open the door. Reginald followed him with Aaron at gunpoint and threw him onto the bed next to H.G. and Jason. H.G.'s dog, Nikki, began growling and barking, and they told her to grab the dog or they'd shoot it. The brothers then asked who else was in the house, and Aaron told him that Brad and Heather were in the house as well. Within a short time, all five of the friends were in the same room, held at gunpoint by the Carr brothers. They asked if there was anyone else in the house, and they asked about the phones and how many were in the house. Their attention then turned to money. They began asking all of the victims how much money they had and if they had ATM cards, which they all did. What happened next is really awful, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the brothers forced all five of the victims to perform sex acts on each other, and they would beat them when the men were unable to. And, you know, Aaron was studying to become a priest, so this was awful. Over the course of the next few hours, both H.G. and Heather were also repeatedly raped by Reginald and Jonathan. Just absolutely horrific all around. And it's escalating from just a robbery. After that, the brothers were ready to get the money. Brad was the first to be taken to the ATM. He couldn't find the, key, the keys to his car, so they took Jason's truck. Jonathan stayed at the condo while Reginald went with Brad to the Commerce Bank, where he took out $350 from his checking account at 11.54 p.m., and $350 from his savings account at 11.55 p.m. He then took out another $1,150 at Prairie State, Prairie State Bank. Two more transaction attempts at another bank were declined, so they went back to the condo. Jason was taken next to the ATM where he was able to withdraw $280 before they went back to the condo. H.G. was the next to be taken by Reginald to the ATM, where she withdrew $500 over two separate transactions and gave it to him. Aaron was taken to the ATM next, where he withdrew $350. And while Aaron and Reginald were away, 
Jonathan found the engagement ring that Jason had purchased for HG. So she found out during this horror that she, that Jason was going to propose to her. So following all of that, the brothers wiped down surfaces and items throughout the condo before escorting the five victims out to the garage. Heather and HG were forced into the, the car, into the backseat of Aaron's car, while the three men, Brad, Aaron, and Jason, were forced to get into the trunk of the car. Heather stayed in Aaron's car with Jonathan while Reginald escorted HG to Jason's truck. The hostages were completely naked aside from HG and Heather who were wearing sweaters. As they were pulling away from the condo, HG asked Reginald where they were taking them and he told her that they wanted to drop them off far away from the cars. It was 2.07 a.m. when they arrived at a secluded area that was unfamiliar to HG. It turned out to be a soccer field. All five of the hostages were taken out of the cars and ordered to kneel in the snow in front of the cars before being shot, execution style, one by one. HG was the only one to survive the shooting. And this is said to be because the bullet ricocheted off her hair clip, which ultimately saved her life. The Carr brothers left the five victims on the soccer field and fled the scene. And these dumbasses went back to the condo and ransacked the entire place, stealing valuables such as the TV and the engagement ring. And they also killed HG's poor dog, Nikki. Ugh. Meanwhile, HG had watched her attackers leave, and she immediately tried to save her friends, who were all mortally wounded lying nearby. She tied her sweater around Jason's head before realizing she needed to leave and find someone who could help them. She looked around her. It was snowing and absolutely freezing outside. It was Wichita in December, and she was not wearing any clothes. She couldn't see anything except some twinkling Christmas lights off in the distance that had caught her eye. She immediately started heading towards the lights. She climbed over a barbed wire fence, crossed a highway, traveling a little over a mile before she reached the house. She knocked on the door and was greeted by a man named Steve Johnson and his girlfriend Kim. She told them that she and her friends had been shot and she needed to get her story out before she died. They brought her into the house, covered her with a blanket, and called 911. HG took the phone from the man and told the operator what had happened in her own words. She explained how two men had come into the condo, attacked and kidnapped them all, and had shot her and her friends in the back of, her, in the back of their heads. She also told them that the attackers had left in Jason's vehicle, so immediately the police began looking for the truck, the 1999 Dodge Dakota. HG was taken to the hospital where she was treated for her wounds and was able to describe the attackers. The gunshot wound that she had suffered had fractured her skull, but miraculously, it did not penetrate her brain. She had bruises and lacerations on her face as and body, as well as frostbite on her feet. But she was alive. 
Officers arrived on scene at the soccer field, and they found the bodies of Brad, Heather, Jason, and Aaron. After checking for signs of life and finding none, the first officer to arrive on scene called in four cold blue victims. Officers found spent shell casings, bullet fragments, and pieces of HG's plastic hair clip, as well as, as footprints in the snow leading away from the scene. They began the investigation and started taking fingerprints and photographs while officers set up off looking for the suspects in this horrific crime. On the morning of the 15th, investigators arrived at the condo where the crimes had begun, and they found that it had been ransacked. TVs, computers, and other valuable items were missing. So it quickly became clear that after these attackers had murdered the victims, they returned to the condo to load up all of their valuables. One of the investigators was leaving the condo when Heather Muller's mom walked up to, that, to the condo. She told them that Heather had, hadn't come home that night and she was concerned. She asked him if her daughter was okay, and he responded, quote, I'm sorry. And then she asked if Aaron was okay, and he had to tell her that no, he was not okay either. Media began to arrive at the scene and started to put out information about the suspects and the missing vehicles and stolen items. This was a huge developing situation, and the community was on high alert. They were looking for Jason's Dodge Dakota, and eventually a man came forward claiming that he knew exactly where the truck was. The truck was located at an apartment complex, and every available officer in the area was asked to report to the complex. They didn't know what they were walking into. They didn't know if the suspects lived in the apartment complex or just dropped the truck off there and ran. But eventually, a man who lived in the complex came forward and said that a guy had asked him to help him, help him move a big TV up to a third floor apartment. So now they had an idea of which apartment the suspects might be in. Officers lined up in the hall silently. They knocked on the door and a female responded. She opened the door, but there was a chain on the door to obstruct the entrance. Officers could see TVs and VCRs and other items on the floor as if someone was just moving in possibly. Just then, the officers could hear yelling coming from the outside after one of the suspects attempted to go out on the back patio. So at that point, they knew they had to get into the apartment, and they immediately broke down the door. Inside, they found the woman along with one of the suspects, and inside his pocket, they found one of Jason Beford's debit cards and the woman identified the man she was with as her boyfriend, Reginald Carr. Officers asked her who he had been with earlier in the day, and she claimed that it was, it was his brother, Jonathan Carr. So they had one suspect in custody, but they were still looking for Jonathan. Later in the day, on the 15th, a woman was watching the news coverage of the events a friend she had met a few weeks earlier had come over to her house that, they, that day, and they were just hanging out. So they're watching the news together, and the woman goes, uh, Hey, isn't that your brother? She apparently had met them both at the same time a few weeks prior at the mall, 
And the man just kind of played it off. But the young woman's mother, who was also there, didn't feel right about this man or the situation. She started to look through his jacket where she found the engagement ring. She immediately knew that this was Jonathan Carr, the brother of the man on the TV. So, thinking ahead, she made an excuse to go over to the neighbor's house where she called the police. Officers arrived in the area and Jonathan took off running. He was pursued by an officer who was a lot faster than he was and he was taken into custody. Before she passed away, Anne Walenta was able to identify Jonathan Carr as one of her attackers and Andrew Schreiber was able to identify Reginald Carr as the person who robbed him. Not only were they identified by the victims, the evidence was overwhelming. The ballistics, all of the bullet casings from all three scenes matched. And so because of all of the evidence, the Carr brothers refused to speak with police. But why would they do this? There wasn't really a motive other than pure greed. Reginald and Jonathan Carr were ultimately charged with over 100 criminal counts, including the murders, sexual assault, burglary, and theft. In October of 2002, the trial began. Jonathan and Reginald showed no remorse for their crimes. Reginald was repeatedly removed from the courtroom because he wouldn't stop smirking and behaving inappropriately. Andrew Shriver testified against them, and H.G. testified against them as well. She described her choice to stand up and live rather than lay down and die. Her strength was and is incredible. The trial lasted three weeks. Jurors found the brothers guilty on all but one count. It immediately went to the sentencing phase, and on November 14, 2002, both brothers were sentenced to death. They appealed these sentences, claiming that they should not have been tried together. In 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court overturned their death sentences, but in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated their death sentences. And as of earlier this month, January of 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the brothers' final appeals of their convictions. And this means that they no longer have any direct appeals of their death sentences. However, they can still file lawsuits in state or federal courts to prevent their executions. And they are right where they belong. Absolutely the worst humans you could imagine. And the victims did not deserve what happened to them. Ann Walenta, Brad Haka, Aaron Sander, Jason Befort, and Heather Muller were the victims who were killed. And Andrew Shriver and the victim, only known as H.G., were the survivors of this horrific crime spree. Something incredible did come from this tragedy, though. During the trial, Andrew and H.G. began forming a close bond because of what they had gone through, and they eventually got married, and they have two children together. One of the investigators still leaves his Christmas lights on at night during the holidays because that's what H.G. used to guide her that night. And that is the Wichita Massacre. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
The sources for today's episode will be listed in the show notes and also on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to episodes, plus so much more. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next time. Bye.